Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome, my entrepreneur friend. It's good to have you join in. As you may know, with a thousand interview requests a month to get on my show, I started including short interviews on significant topics to help give important messages a chance at communicating to a large audience. Almost like a public service announcement, but just a little bit more geared to entrepreneurs and business people. I call each one of these short interviews an insider's brief, and they're usually about 10 to 15 minutes long. So that said, here are six key insider's briefs covering a range of topics such as how to write influential emails and inspire coworkers to take action, about how more women are breaking through to the top of the leadership ranks, about improving equitable access to safe drinking water the world over, about a new book to help you take command of your inner strength and build enduring relationships, about the IBM Skills Build free education program that helps develop new skills and access career opportunities. And lastly, about a lifetime travel experience that's closer than you think in Nova Scotia. How's that for a great range of helpful topics for us? And while we're at it, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get very successful at growing your business to a high sustainable level. And we're going to help turn you into an elite entrepreneur. All right, let's get the intro music going and let's start with number one. Number one, do you feel like your work emails are being ignored? Some of us do, or perhaps is it a lot of us? How would you like some tips for writing influential work emails that actually inspire your coworkers to answer or take action? Wouldn't that be great? With us is Catherine Matiski. She's the globally recognized business trainer and founder of the performance company. And she's going to give us some solutions to this. Pay attention and let's, uh, let's learn from her. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Catherine, as I understand it, you help, or actually better put, you energize Fortune 500 companies with solutions to drive employee behavior. And it's really a very fascinating topic, and a lot of us wrestle with it or maybe pull our hairs, you know, pull, pull on our hair trying to figure out how to get, get around this. And times change, things change, protocols change. Let's dive into some of the tips for writing influential work emails. And I'm looking through your list, and, and while we know some of these, hearing about them may just kind of go over our head, but they are super important, such as keep it short. Absolutely. Well, keep it short. You know, who wants to read an email that is like when it was printed, it looks like wallpaper. And the you know, when you get those long emails, I know for me, I just go, oh, like I can't even be bothered with it. I think I'll come back to it later. Well, of course, I don't. And then there's something buried within it. If you look at what you're trying to communicate, think about what are the, what are the main two or three points that I need to communicate. Communicate those and be done with it. If you feel like you're writing a wallpaper email, then that's not the forum for it. Maybe it's an attached document. Maybe it's an attached presentation. Maybe it's a group meeting, but it doesn't belong in an email. I totally understand. And I think that actually also applies to reading anything that's printed. At least it does for me. Now, the next one that caught my attention, which I used to use, I went to a different school of thought. Uh, you talk about using I statements. And I'd love to hear more about that and have you clarify that. Well, the difference is between using I statements as opposed to you statements. So if you think about giving feedback to someone, maybe it's a member of your team, maybe it's a customer, if you take the ownership on for yourself, it makes that feeling of connection. And the number one thing you need to do is to connect with whoever you're sending that email to. And I talk about meet them where they are and take them where they need to go. 
So what you're doing is you're pitching it based on who they are, where they're at, and where they've been in the past and where you need them to go. If you start using you statements and perhaps go back through your sent item and have a look at are you one of these people that says you need to do this and you need to do that and and you sent me a report and your next step is this. If you just flip that language around to say I read your report and my feedback is this, try and take that onus and that accountability on yourself. It is such a tiny thing, but it makes you look and sound more assertive. It builds that number one thing, which is connection. Through the tiniest twist, zero skill required, just a bit of focus. Once you've written your email, before you press send, do a scan. Am I using that I language? And I'm thinking with you with this, let's say I'm someone's boss or, or I have a team. And I want or I need something done. There's something that they need to do. So instead of saying, you guys need to get this stuff done, I'm just trying to think of an example of how can you uh, change that communication into the and use the I state. Do you have a, an example for us? Yeah. So instead of you guys need to get this done, you could turn that easily around to say, in order to meet the project goals, I would ask that this is done by Friday. So that immediately doesn't, it takes the heat off them like, oh, you know, she said you guys have to get this done. Well, no, now there's a reason. To meet the project goals, I'd ask that it be done by Friday. It completely neutralises the emotion out of it. I like that. And I'm going to start using that and see what the difference is. I like that. Thank you for that. The next one here is avoid absolutes. That's an interesting one. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, the absolutes are things like this process never works or it always messes up or the website crashes all the time. Like, no, it doesn't crash all the time. The system doesn't mess up all the time and things sometimes work. So by putting that sort of explosive absolute language in, you're just doing very broad brush emotive words. Just delete them and get back into the precision. So be very precise with your details to say things like, I've noticed, I again, I've noticed that we're slipping on the, you know, the um, functionality of this process. It's slipped to 98%. Let's look at that 2% and focus in on that. Instead of going, oh, that thing always never works. It's just, it's just a different way of going around it. And you don't need to do a data dump. You don't need to overwhelm them in the email. Remember, this is an email. But think about Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, not too much, not just too little, just right. The objective is, is to leave that reader wanting more for later. And if you use that explosive language, people just go, oh, here she goes again, or here he goes again, with this broad brush stuff, they just don't get it. So it's just a way of tailoring that precision in and getting rid of those very big absolutes. That is so, so important. I know a number of people who speak this way with everything. And I know I'm speaking in an absolute now, but these people, a smaller group, say that, oh, it always happens this way. Oh, that light at that street. Oh, I hate going there because it's always red for me. Or there's always a jam or, oh, this never works. And it's like, it's so trained and ingrained in them that I, it needs you. They need you. They need, they need training because when you change from the absolutes, it makes a better way of life. It makes business happen because these absolutes, they block. It's like a stone block. Oh, I can't get past there. Oh, this will never happen. And it's like, no, it, it will happen if you think it can. It's like, it's like a mindset thing. We need that. And if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner and you're using that kind of absolute language, that's very divisive. It's, it, you need to go back to that first principle of the connection. How do I make connection with people? And using those absolutes is a great way, as you said, to block people, to put up those roadblocks, to put up those barriers. And it's about noticing what you say. 
And in emails, you can go back and scan and say, well, have I written any of those things? And just even in your day-to-day language, just when you're about to say that, just stop and go, okay, I'm not going to say that. And just pick yourself up in your everyday language. You know, as we as we talk about this, Catherine, I'm thinking that the person that uses that type of language is exasperated, angry, or um, just a little upset. And so that nomenclature, that language comes out. And I think getting the person always be more in control will, will help. But again, you're the trainer and the expert on this. I'm just kind of looking at it from the outside. Great point to avoid absolutes. Another point here, I'm looking through this material and I think I know it, but then as I read it again, I don't know it. You talk about build translation bridges. So the way people communicate, I'm a learning specialist and I've had my entire career looking at how people learn and trying to understand how people take in information into their brains and process that information. That's what I do, this whole idea of learning science, which some people would go, oh, this is so boring. For me, it's my genius zone. And so when we look at how people communicate and how people take in information, we all have our unique ways. So the way you learn and the way I learn are different and the way you speak and the way I speak are different. And so the trick is, is how do you communicate with people who are different to you? In other words, they have a different way, their different learning preference, a different communication preference. So I devised an entire profile for this. And one of the pieces of it is the thing that I call the translation bridge. So instead of communicating to you, Tony, in this case, in my way, the best way for the quickest understanding for you for the quickest way for me to influence you and for you to take action is for you to hear me your way. So that means that firstly, I have to spot what your natural communication is. That's a skill that can be learned. And the second thing is, is for me to change my language to your way. That's that translation bridge. I bridge and I create that connection to you by using the words that most resonate with you. And that is a real skill. It's a skill to be learned. It might take, you know, a week. It might take a month. It might take 12 months to really hone in on how to do that. And that's my work zone where I teach people how to do that. When you do that, what happens is when you're talking to, let's say, your business owner, when you're talking to um, a a prospect, you're talking in their language and they go, wow, I really like this guy. I really like this woman. She, she's like me. She's like us. You're building that connection. You then communicate more freely. And the ultimate game is then you get a higher uptake on your influence scale. Catherine, thank you so much. Where can we go for more information? So the website that I have is called thegeniusquotient.com. I'm on LinkedIn. If you go to Catherine Matiski at LinkedIn, There's all sorts of um, things on LinkedIn. I write articles and I have a group on LinkedIn. Connect with me there. Send me a Zoom link for a coffee and I'll show up for a coffee. Um, At this point in my life, Tony, I have, you know, had an amazing career and met amazing people. At this point, I just feel like a bit like Mother Teresa. I'm happy to help. If someone needs my help, I'm happy to help. So just reach out to me email, LinkedIn, website, whatever works. That's absolutely wonderful. And I'm going to connect with you on LinkedIn, of course. Thank you so much, Catherine, for going over these points. It was short and sweet. And I hope everyone goes and checks out more about you at uh, thegeniusquotient.com. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tony. Number two. And here's an insider's brief on the importance of equity and inclusion for women leaders in corporate America. Now, the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, it remains at the forefront of the national conversation. You know, today, more women are breaking through to the top of the leadership ranks. I've interviewed them on my show. More and more women have great leadership skills, and we want want to showcase everyone. Now, I do want to say that these hard-won achievements, they're overshadowed by the fact that women remain acutely underrepresented 
in the middle management tiers, which jeopardizes the prospects for a healthy pipeline of future women leaders. You know that. Well, with us, we have Kitty Cheney-Reed, Vice President, Chief Leadership, Culture, and Inclusion Officer at IBM, to tell us a little bit more about this. Hi, Kitty, and welcome to the show. Hey there, and thanks for having me. Kitty, there's so much to talk about. Perhaps let's just kind of start from the top and lay out the groundwork of what, what this is all about here. Kitty, what does the roadmap look like for sustainable progress for women today? Thanks for asking. I think more than anything else, we want to highlight four things. One is the fact that um, gender equity has to be a business priority right up there with revenue and profitability. We have to treat it the same. And the same way we hold leaders accountable uh, to um, drivers on and success on revenue and profitability, we want to hold them accountable for advancing the careers of women. So at IBM, that looks like um, a diversity modifier that we apply to all of our executives. And essentially, their compensation and their bonuses are tied to success in this area. Um, The third thing I want to highlight for you is, you know, we can't just talk about the the things we want to do. We have to put action plans behind them. I always say you can't just talk about it. You have to be about it. So um, in this case, it's putting real action behind our words. And the way we've done that at IBM in one particular instance is with our technical talent. We have a program called IBM Pathways where we have technical leaders that are women that we actually put services and support around. So we give them opportunities for education, for exposure and experiences that they might not ordinarily have. We put about 800 women through this program. And of those 800 women, 190 of them have progressed to senior roles. That to me is what progress looks like. Um, and Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It was hard work. And I think it leads to the very last point I'll make, um, which is around um, really how we design roles at the top and how we how we define the requirements for roles at the top. Obviously, we want qualified women. We want qualified people in roles at the top. But sometimes I think historically we've created a long list of requirements that are not necessarily required for success. So we should think about shortening those lists to only the critical things that are required and um, making that um, the requirement as opposed to creating a list of reasons why women are qualified to do these jobs. I see. And how can employers support their female employees and achieve gender equity in in leadership? We actually love the concept of what we call business resource groups at IBM. We've actually funded 65 business resource groups that are led by women and composed of women and male allies. And these business resource groups are ground up efforts to really activate our women um, in the workforce, activities, uh, learnings, coaching, mentoring, kind of all the things that women need to support them that, you know, are specific to their particular needs. So that's one way that we can support them. But the best way is by really making sure that women have an equal opportunity to compete. And that comes down to culture. Well, all right. So let's get into culture. Why is it such a a key factor in helping to advance the careers of women? I've worked in corporate America for like some 30 odd years Mm -hmm. and I understand it, but things have changed so much. So in a new unit, please, uh, please kind of explain it to me as well. Why is culture so important? So for me, it's important because culture equals behaviors and attitudes. That's how we show up. You know, oftentimes people talk about culture being this thing that we design. Actually, culture is the opposite of that. Culture is something that is born, something that is born from the bottom up and and swells up. 
Um, and then leaders reinforce the culture. Um, and so what is so important is that we come with this open-minded approach to really making certain that opportunity is available for all people um, with a focus on diversity. And the reason is because companies who, well, not the only reason, but one of the most compelling reasons is companies that have diverse makeups at the top and throughout the organization tend to perform better. They perform better when it comes to profitability, revenue, employee engagement. So there's a business imperative around um, showing up when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But again, it's culture. People make up culture. Absolutely. And it will always absolutely be that way. Regardless of computers and AI, people are at the core. Now, I understand that IBM is doing a lot of work to, let's call it, strengthen that pipeline for women. And I'm curious about that work, how that involves and includes accountability. Yeah, so I'll go back to the, the point we made at the top of the call. Accountability is an important piece of the roadmap forward um, in terms of sustainability of the pipeline. But I think it really is about designing um, and building in these accountability metrics and mechanisms. And for us, like I said, it just happens to be that it's tied to executive compensation and bonuses. But you can choose whatever suits your company. For us, um, it's the thing that we thought um, put teeth behind our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But again, we set goals. We set aspirational goals. We do that with our businesses and we agree on those goals. And then we hold ourselves accountable um, in terms of performance. We move forward and there's a great reward. We move backwards and there's a penalty, one that we, we agreed on. And then if we stay stagnant, then nobody wins. So that's exactly what accountability looks like in every area of our business. It's changed back way back in the day. It used to be whoever I think was the most level-headed in dealing with others usually was the one that we would pick like when there's a manager is like, well, who's who doesn't fly off the handle? We had simple metrics back then. Who doesn't <laughs> fly off the handle? Who's very level-headed? And I found in terms of women, those that were moms really, mm. believe it or not, just had this, they were able to deal with a lot of confusion, randomity, things happening, and, and not you know freak out or flip out. And those back way back when were really good qualities we like to see in a woman, especially when a manager spot opened up. It was like, I know exactly who would do really well at it. It was very simple back then. It's a little different now, but I think sometimes the basics are still the basics, don't you think? Well, I think the qualifications are the same for men as they are for women. And again, I think what we're asking for more than anything else is a level playing field. So it's really allowing women to compete in the same spaces on the same um, playing field as any other person. Um, and then making certain that when they do enter into those spaces, that they have an opportunity to be successful. They're given the same opportunity, um, you know, the same um, concessions and considerations that you would to, to anyone else. Uh, women are qualified. Women are ready to compete. Women are out there and available to us. We just have to be open-minded enough to let them in. Well said. And where can our listeners go for more information about the IBV Women in Leadership Study? Uh, please go to ibm.com forward slash women dash leadership dash 2023. You can find the 2023 study there and you can also find prior year studies there. Sounds good. We'll put that on the on the show notes as well. It's IBM dot com slash women that's women with the e dash leadership dash two zero two three kitty thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about this i hope that 
we help uh, accomplish more of what you want to accomplish and raise raise the awareness and understanding on this. This is very important. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Number three, and here's an insider's brief on solutions on providing equitable access to safe drinking water for all. We're told that the lack of consistent access to clean water is a major problem for 2 billion people that live in countries experiencing intense water stress. We speak with Michael Jacobs, sustainability and social innovation leader, IBM corporate social responsibility, to tell us all about it. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tony. Michael, let's start at the top now. I've seen a lot, countless travel documentaries, uh, and, and while not focusing on water shortage, while you're watching these, you can see how horrible and how severe the issue really is the world over. And so much of the issue seems to be really kind of man-made. So kind of let's start there. Let's talk about solutions. And you have something called the IBM Sustainability Accelerator? That's right. So the IBM Sustainability Accelerator is IBM's primary social impact program to help people vulnerable to environmental threats. Our next focus is going to be water management. As you're saying, this is a massive issue all over the world. And you don't need the travel show to figure that out. I myself in the Hudson Valley in New York this year got a reduce your water message when the local reservoir levels fell below specific rates. That's a much worse and longer standing issue in many other parts of this country and elsewhere. The solutions are as varied as the reasons for these issues happening in the first place. Ultimately, IBM wants to hear from the people experiencing the issues on the ground and then the experts already helping them. We, of course, have our own expertise for technology and business process management which we deploy for partners all over the world today, and which we now want to deploy to benefit these vulnerable people. Just as a preview, and I know we'll get into this more, this is everything from mobile applications to water sensors. It's things that can fit in your pocket. It's things in the field next door. I want to get my wits around this because really when you speak of the world, every region has its own issues, its own problems, its own, this created this, which created the water issues. It's kind of hard to put everything in one bucket. But let's kind of, uh, I guess, go forward with the solutions. You mentioned so many different things here. Let's talk about how can we, well, first of all, improve equitable access to safe drinking water. One of those would be better understanding the issue itself. So clearly, this is massive all over the world. However, as we're already saying, there are differences community to community. So in some places, it's going to be about what's the nature of the drinking water source, let's say. Is that a natural body of water? Is that a managed body of water, like the reservoir? Is it gauged? So are there sensors there already to watch water levels? Is it something that people just pull water from directly and always have without really knowing how deep it is. These types of considerations exist in every community around the world. The solutions for them are going to vary based on those issues. We've been talking here about water availability, but also water quality, just monitoring, is the water that's available clean enough for any use? And so I would broadly categorize the issues around understanding the problem, monitoring it, and then predicting the future conditions. And with that kind of what's happened already, what's happening now, what's going to happen in the future, that knowledge can better inform better operations in the future. I got you. And I'm going to ask you kind of a little silly question because I know that you work at IBM. And when I think of IBM, I don't know about everybody, I think of, well, computers, I think of electronics, and I'm thinking, okay. So it's just kind of like a two-part question. It's like, if you don't mind me asking, like, why or how come IBM is involved in this? Um, I, and I understand that there's this factor of safeguarding the environment and helping and, and doing our part socially. 
but I'd like to hear what, why is IBM involved and what kind of projects is IBM doing to really help with this initiative? So I hear you. And this is a new IBM. My dad wrote his doctoral thesis on an IBM Selectric typewriter. We're a long way from there. But today, IBM hybrid cloud and AI solutions are being deployed already for utilities and governments who are managing water resources or otherwise helping to address these issues. So we know that we're well positioned to help. And though why help? Beyond the moral judgment of it seems like the right thing to do, these are our communities as well. IBMers live in communities with water stress. IBM does business in communities with water stress. So this is natural to us. These are issues that we're all a part of, whether we like it or not. I got you. And what kind of projects are there? You mentioned a few things early on. I like to kind of drill down what are some of these projects um, and, and actually, believe it or not, how can we help? We're a business community. Is there anything we can get involved? Maybe that's two-part question. So we'll just go to what kind of projects are available or being done right now? So we actually already have a body of work around sustainable agriculture that has two examples on water in it, because ag and water clearly have an interlinked relationship. So one of those has a very low-cost, easy-to-deploy IoT sensor. This is a soil moisture sensor to measure how much water is already in the ground. It links to an IBM Cloud, an AI-backed solution that provides when-to-water decision support to farmers. So that's one side of the coin. On the other, let's say on the water quality side, we're working with Deltaris. This is a Dutch water science organization on a solution that they already had and brought to us called the Nitrate app. That app is focused on measuring water quality. Nitrates are very prone, very commonly used in fertilizers and other agricultural additives. So in places where there are many farms or golf courses or manicured lawns, you see these types of toxins running off into the water supply. That's an issue for ag, but also for drinking and in it. So it's going to be everything, as we mentioned before, from tools to actually monitor conditions today, AI and weather forecasting to predict issues to come, and then mobile applications or big data platforms that actually inform the people on the ground, the farmers, the water managers, everybody else, about what the issues are and what they can do to operationalize the needed changes. And the second part of your question, how can people get engaged? IBM.com slash impact. That's the homepage for all of IBM's social impact work. There's background info there on the RFP. We encourage people to check it out. This program targets nonprofit and governmental organizations for who we would support, but IBM needs help. The community needs help. So for for-profit enterprises or others who have expertise or links in the community, again, IBM.com slash impact has contact information, background on our current RFP. We hope people reach out. We want to work with them. I think that for any business to be successful, now this is my opinion, my point of view, you got to have, you got to have some care for your environment, for your people and give back. My company, uh, we give back, we, we help feed, we help feed people. And, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a great feeling as well as it's a duty to give back to the environment. It's, it's a duty to give back to the world, especially when we take, 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 which we're so used to. It's good to give back. So I encourage everyone to, to look at measures, at projects that you can be involved with that would help. And if you need something and you don't have something to do, not that you don't have something to do. Believe me, we're all entrepreneurs. We probably have too much to do. But if you don't have something to do in the field of giving back to the environment, this is a really interesting and a very worthwhile humanitarian project to get into. And there's a lot more that I'd like to learn about you, your sustainability accelerator. And perhaps maybe you could just give a little bit more on, on that and what can we do? Well, yes, I, I got that. We can go to ibm.com slash impact. And I'm just kind of like, it's such a big field to just spend a few minutes. Isn't, it just isn't enough. 
I hear you. And we'd love to pick up the conversation more with you and others. We're really trying to take a community-driven approach. The background on the program is it's a cohort-based model. So we try to tackle a new issue each year, but we then provide long-term support to the organizations we bring on in each of those years. So we have a body of work running on sustainable agriculture, another cohort on clean energy, this RFP that's now open on water is accepting proposals through the end of May. We'll kick off work this fall. Again, we're targeting social impact organizations, groups that by their own mandate are supporting the most underserved or the most vulnerable to environmental threats. But IBM's own business model brings partners to the table for value delivery for our clients every day. And so similarly here, we know that there are other organizations out there who want to be a part of this. The experience is dynamic. We're engaging the communities on the ground. We're designing against the needs that we hear, and we're developing solutions that we then support the implementation of. Please, 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 ibm.com slash impact. Check it out and reach out. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show to tell us about it. May everyone have good, clean, fresh water in the world, and may the projects be a, a success. Thank you so much. Here, here. Thank you, Tony. Number four. With new survey insights, IBM is helping underrepresented communities access STEM skills training and digital credentials. With us is Justina Nixon Saintil. IBM Chief Impact Officer. Hi, Justina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, there's a new survey from IBM that reveals a variety of misconceptions about STEM skilling. Based on your new survey, what are the biggest challenges to training for a role in STEM today? Yeah, so we surveyed around 14,000 students, job seekers, and those who are actually in the process of changing careers. And we surveyed them across 13 countries. And what we found, the biggest concern for respondents was that training was too expensive. So that was the number one concern for those that we surveyed. In addition, a lot of our respondents did not know where to start to find the right training based on their current skills and goals. And they also did not have enough awareness about how digital credentials can be used to enhance their profiles and their resumes. But although 61% of our respondents did not feel qualified to work in a STEM job, many of them are optimistic that jobs in STEM will increase in the next decade and will create new career opportunities. So we were excited to see that optimism, but definitely there's a lot of work to be done to provide more awareness of the free training programs that exist and how digital credentials can really make a difference in a job search. I think that's incredible. And so how is IBM helping to create pathways for underrepresented communities to pursue careers in STEM? Yeah, so IBM has always had a strong commitment to training and education. And we actually recently committed to skill 30 million people worldwide by 2030 with a focus on communities that are underrepresented in technology. You know, what we want to make sure we do is raise awareness of the breadth of technology roles that exist across industries and the multiple pathways to those roles, again, especially for those who have been historically excluded from many of these STEM opportunities. So we recently announced a major expansion of our Skills Build program with 45 new partners. And these new partners are across social service organizations, economic development, government agencies, and even universities. And they're going to work with these communities that we want to focus on to provide real clear pathways to employment and make sure they have access to the free training. And a lot of the communities that we are working with are really around helping women, including mothers who are returning to the workforce, supporting ethnic minorities, low-income individuals, and refugees as well. That's amazing. Can any listeners sign up to try the online training? Yes, absolutely. So IBM Skills Build is free and it's open to everyone. They just need to go to skillsbuild.org to learn more. And we offer a lot of different resources for students, for adult learners, and also for teachers. Um, we have around 1,000 uh, courses 
um, in the technical disciplines and also in workplace um, skills development. And in the technical area, anything from cybersecurity to data analytics, cloud computing, um, and much more. And what's important is that listeners can actually earn an IBM branded digital credential that is recognized by the market. And this could really help them obtain new opportunities in the tech field. Fantastic. Should learners just focus on technical training or is there also value in learning about professional workplace skills? Yeah, to be successful in the workplace, it's not enough to have just the tech skills. You really need to have those other skills. Sometimes we call them power skills or workplace skills. And those skills such as collaboration and communication, how do you present your idea? How do you problem solve? Um, you know, even design thinking and how to be agile and how to support um, project management as well. Those are all skills that people need to understand and learn to be successful in the workplace. And we offer those professional workplace um, learning skills as well. Justina, the initiatives you've described involve all types of certifications, traditional diplomas, as well as credentials from shorter programs. How should learners decide what type of training best benefits them? I think what's great now is that there are a lot of options for learners. Um, whether they want to obtain a FOIA degree or whether they want to obtain a badge or credential in a certain area, this just gives them more opportunity to be successful in the tech field. And there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So we have learners who are pursuing a digital credential on their way to a four-year college degree. We also have seasoned workers who are exploring digital credentials as a way to upskill themselves in their existing roles. And then we have people who are obtaining digital credentials as a foray into obtaining an entry-level job. So it really is not a one-size-fits-all. And digital transformation is really changing the entire workplace and creating new roles across so many different industries. And it's really around lifelong learning and creating the right path for you based on your goals and your journey. I really appreciate having you on our show today. Where can our listeners go to find out more information about your program? So listeners can access skillsbuild.org to take advantage of our free training. And if you want to learn more about IBM's commitment to the community, they can go to ibm.com impact. Thanks so much, Justina, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Tony. Number five, and here's an insider's brief on how to take command of your inner strength, build enduring relationships, and live the life you want. With us is Joe Hart, the president and CEO at Dale Carnegie Training, which, by the way, is the most experienced training organization in the world. They're celebrating 110 years since its founding operations in over 75 countries, which I'm so impressed. And they've provided training to literally tens of millions of people globally. And if that's not enough, Joe regularly appears on Newsweek, HR.com, and Rolling Stone. That's amazing in itself. But enough of that. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tony. Great to be with you today. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. I, as a teenager, read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I mean, who hasn't? It's quite, it's quite something. As a teenager, I think. I literally had thousands of friends. I, I had more friends, not that I was on a contest, but that book really did something. And now you've taken this book and you've written uh, the new book, and you're going to tell us about it, called Take Command. So let me start here, Joe. Can you tell us, how did that idea emerge to write that book? Yeah, so, so I'm someone who's been truly uh, impacted positively by Dale Carnegie, just like you. I mean, I, I was... I was exposed to Dale Carnegie uh, by my dad uh, when I was a teenager, and, and it started to have an impact. But it really, the, the biggest impact occurred when I took a Dale Carnegie course in my, in my 20s. I was a young lawyer, thought I knew everything, um, you know, had my whole future planned out. And I got into this course, and it really challenged me around not just my vision. I ultimately left the practice of law, went into business, and started my own company, but um, also just from a an empathy standpoint and a, you know, trying to see things from another person's point of view standpoint, I really became much more effective at how I was interacting with other people. 
And uh, my co-author, Michael Crom, who's someone I've known for over 20 years. I mean, he's Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie's grandson. He's been a major part of Dale Carnegie organization for most of his life. And you know, he and I were talking right in the midst of, uh, of COVID just about how the Dale Carnegie principles had such a positive impact on us, but how do we get these to, especially to a younger generation? And so we conceived of the idea of Take Command. Um, it's a book that's really written um, to, uh, based on Dale Carnegie's ideas and his wisdom from how to stop worrying and start living, and how to win friends and influence people. And we've also drawn the Dale Carnegie course. So what we're hoping is that with really contemporary stories, uh, diverse people from all over the world, young people, uh, applying these kinds of principles, that really becomes a a lesson in, in how to take command of our thoughts, our emotions, our relationships, and our lives. Joe, we're entrepreneurs and business people here in this show. And and we wonder, I wonder for them, what does it mean to take command of your thoughts and emotions? Well, you know, we, we live our lives and we, we have thoughts and so we have emotions. And sometimes they're good and they, they steer us in a good direction. Sometimes they drag us down into a not so great place. And taking command says, you know, I want my thoughts and my emotions to serve me, not for me just to be, you know, carried around from, from whim to whim or whatever it might be. So, you know, with taking command of our thoughts means, first of all, I want to pay attention to my thoughts. How often do we think about what we think? You know, so, so we, we might, you know, be in social media and you see something and all of a sudden you get upset or angry or you have an interaction with someone. Someone sends you an email. I had one of these today. I got an email from someone today just, you know, really kind of would have set me off. But I said, wait, time out. What, what am I thinking here? What's my assumption? Am I assuming positive intent in the, the person who sent this email? And, you know, and ultimately, I was able to reframe those thoughts to say, you know what, maybe I'm seeing this the wrong way. And I was seeing it the wrong way. So, you know, rather than kind of following these these thoughts, which can limit us and cause us to be afraid, and especially as entrepreneurs, my gosh, you know, entrepreneurs have to confront, you know, a lot of the, the, the fears that would hold them back, you know, but you could have two people in the exact same situation. One person is excited and positive and the other person is just down and negative and it's all about our thoughts so the first part of this book is built on dale carnegie's ideas about how to really create a mindset for success and here we are by the way beginning of 2023 and i'm thinking okay i got that it can help us with thoughts emotions how can it can it help us really take charge and how can it help us really be in control of this new year? Well, I mean, many people right now, and it's the 10th of January when we're recording this, and I know, I've already heard of people who have said, my resolutions are out the window, right? So, so they're frustrated. They've tried things. They don't think they can do it. You know, and this is a book that's really about empowering people so that you can achieve the things that are important to you. And it challenges people and say, Tony, you know, what, what, what is your vision for yourself? What are the things that are important to you? Why are those things important? And here's a, a, an approach that's going to help you get there. First of all, if you don't take command of your thoughts and your emotions and your motivation and your fears and all these things, you will not be able to achieve the things that you want to do. And the second part of that is what about your relationships? You know, we all live in connection with other people. So, you know, how do I build strong relationships? Sometimes people are the barriers. We've got difficult people in our lives or we get criticized or whatever the case could be. So we need to take command of our relationships. And if we do those two things, then we're ready to say, well, how do I take command of my, my future? So really, the book coming out on January 10th is about, and I, if people are listening to this, to your show, Tony, in February, March, April, May, whenever they are, it's never too late to take command. Take command of your 2023, take command of your life right now. Well, you know, I love that title, Take Command. It's it's an action. It's it's a command. It's like, hey, do this. It's like, let's go. So I really, really like that. And I like the fact that it really centers on relationships because whether we like it or not, relationships make or break our business. I mean, it's a no-brainer. We all know that. How do we deal with it? And I would like to know, Joe, can you share some of, of your favorite principles and how that ties into the book? Maybe kind of tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, and it's a it's a tough question because the Dale Carnegie principles there's thirty how to win friends and you know human relations principles thirty stress and worry principles but you know going back to your your point about relationships I I think the one that's most important to me is to try 
honestly, to see things from another person's point of view. Because, you know, we're really not going to have a strong relationship with anyone if, if we don't do that. If we're focused solely on ourselves, if we're focused on what's important to us, you know, that, that's not a recipe for having a great relationship with someone or, or influencing or any of those kinds of things. On the other hand, every single person wants to be appreciated and valued. And so if we listen to people, if we respect people, so let's just say you and I are having a conversation and you say something that might be, um, I may disagree with. You know, I could dig right into an argument or, and, and, and where's that going to go? Or I might say, well, Tony, tell me more about that. I, I want to hear why do you believe that? What led you to that? You know, so now, you know, how do you feel? You feel respected. You feel heard. You, you build a foundation of trust. So um, really, that principle is just so important, especially in this day and age, and especially where things are so polarized and where people are just so quickly, you know, kind of triggered by things. Totally understand. Totally agree with it. And one of the things that you may or, you know, the listener here, our viewer may not get right away is it's not just take command, but, and it's not just, and I don't mean it in a bad way. It's not just relationships, but you can actually take control. Another way to say, it, take control of your future of your life. Yeah. And I'd love to uh, get your comment on how that can really help make that happen. You know, you're, you're totally right. I mean, you know, it starts with our being intentional. I mean, because what, what often happens is, you know, if, if you ask nine out of 10 people, how are you doing? I would bet that nine out of 10 people or yes, 10 people, nine out of 10 people would say, I'm busy. I'm so busy, 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 busy. You know, but what happens is we get busy and days and weeks and months and years go by and we say to ourselves, am I really living the life? Am I doing the things that are important to me? How often you know, do you read about people who on their deathbed have regrets? They wish they had done things. They they weren't bold enough. They were afraid of what people thought, whatever it is. So, you know, the third part of this book, especially, is about asking people, it's like, Tony, you know, what 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 are your values? What's your vision for yourself? Trying to get people to think about those things right now. What's the legacy? And the stories, this book is filled with stories that are really, I think, inspirational. You know, often we we see what someone else does. Or what someone else struggles with, you know, and that can inspire us, and especially when they achieve something. And the reality is that you and I are capable of so much, maybe even more than we think we are. And certainly that was Dale Carnegie's point of view, is, is that, you know, we have so many talents and so much within us that we just never really leverage. And, you know, part of what the Dale Carnegie programs are about, and part of what this book is about, is really helping people unlock this inner greatness that they have so that they can be more confident and achieve great things. So the book is really a blueprint, you know, to help people do that. Absolutely love it. Absolutely, Joe. Where can we get your book, Take Command? So it's available on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, really any place that uh, books are sold. Uh, you could buy it Audible, uh, Kindle, or hardcover. Um, also, we've got a ton of free resources on dalecarnegie.com. And so many people might say, I mean, for me, it, the game changer was taking a Dale Carnegie course. So if people want to learn about Dale Carnegie programs or things that can help them take command of their lives, um, they can go to dalecarnegie.com for that. Absolutely love it, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing about this book. And I really hope our listeners check it out. It's helped me again, as I mentioned, when I was when I was young, it's helped me on my career, good or bad or indifferent, and I sure hope it helps everyone else. Thank you so much, Joe. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show, Tony. Great to see you. Number six. And here's an insider's brief about once-in-a-lifetime travel experiences are closer than you think. I love to travel, and we're going to learn how you can do more in Nova Scotia. With us is Pam Wambach, Media Relations Specialist for Tourism, Nova Scotia. She's going to tell us everything. Hi, Pam. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is mine. I haven't been too much in Canada, and I haven't been to Nova Scotia yet. So I want to ask you right off, what's so unique about a Nova Scotia vacation? Oh, I'm probably very biased since I'm born and raised uh, in Nova Scotia. And I think one of the things that I love uh, about my job, I'm very lucky, is that I get to show off my home. And so for me, one of my favorite things is that if you look at us on a map, you know, we're in the eastern part of Canada, 
We're the second smallest province in Canada. So it looks small on the map, but don't let that deceive you because there's a lot of ground to cover. And I love the fact that we're just so diverse from one end of the province to the other with our, with our geography, with our cultural experiences, the type of activities that you can do. We have uh, over 8,500 miles of coastline to explore. We're almost an island, but not quite. And there's all kinds of unique, different experiences. And of course, the culinary scene is, is fantastic. And I'm thinking of Nova Scotia. Is that where Oak Island is? I've, I've been looking at the Oak Island treasure area, whatever you want to call it, a couple of years ago. That's in Nova Scotia, right? Yeah, it definitely is. If you follow the show at all, The Curse of Oak Island, uh, it's available throughout the U.S. and the Discovery and the History channels. And it's really, I mean, I've known the story my entire life, but in essence, it's uh, a couple of brothers that are actually from the, the U.S., Michigan area. Um, and they're bound and determined to find this treasure that's been reportedly buried on the island about 250 years ago. The challenge is that there's um, a myth that goes along with the discovery of that, that treasure, that seven people must die before it'll be found. Ouch. And six have died over the years trying to find it. But, but these guys, the Lagina brothers, I mean, they're top notch. They've got the latest technology. And, you know, regardless of what they find, the artifacts, the, the connections, the history that they've been able to um, derive from the various explorations is really fascinating. So if you get a chance, I highly recommend checking out the show. It, it gives you just a tiny sense of, of a small part of Nova Scotia. And aside from visiting Oak Island and getting into that, what are some other really cool things that we can do in Nova Scotia? Well, if you haven't been here before, it's surprising. Like we are a road trip destination. So for people like getting in their cars and kind of going exploring, it's it's a great place to do it. And it's so easy to get around too. And you don't have to spend a lot of time in your car to get to different experiences. I mean, Halifax is our capital city. Uh, it, it's a seaside city. So it's got all the amenities that you want in an urban location, but yet it's next to the water. It kind of still has that small coastal charm, coastal town feel to it. Um, you travel down towards the southwestern part of the province. A lot of that is like being in New England. You're going to weave in and out of small coastal fishing villages, a lot of fresh seafood that's found along there, rugged coastline. You come up along the Bay of Fundy. Um, the Bay of Fundy is home to the highest tides in the world, which were recorded. The, the Guinness Book of Records record was actually recorded here in Nova Scotia. And those high tides coming in every day, twice a day, bring a wealth of, of nutrients into the soil. And that's why along the Bay of Fundy, we have a very rich agricultural region. So obviously people are familiar, we're, we're known for our seafood, but they don't know that we have such a growing, vast growing region as well with lots of farms and orchards and vineyards. And, and speaking of vineyards, we're one of three wine regions in all of Canada. So we have over 20 wineries that's here with our own signature Appalachian wine called Tidal Bay. So that, you know, the Bay of Fundy affects our soil. You get up towards the northern part of the province, where along the Northumberland Strait, which has the warmest waters recorded um, north of the Carolinas. So it's fantastic as a beach destination. And then at the top of the province, there's Cape Breton Island. I mean, it's a jewel in amongst itself, rich in Scottish heritage and Celtic traditions. Uh, it has the, the Cabot Trail, which has been voted with so many accolades, is, is one of the best scenic drives in the world. So you're never going to be bored. Um, it, it's some, some of the top-rated golf courses in Canada um, are found here in Nova Scotia as well. So I really, truly believe that there's a little something to appeal to everybody um, here in Nova Scotia. You're getting me interested. I <laughs> love traveling. And I don't mean it facetiously. I mean, you're really getting me interested. I love traveling. I spend a couple months a year traveling all over the United States, everywhere I can. I, I'm a jeeper. I love the mountains. I love the trails. I love the hikes. I love, I love it all. And Nova Scotia has some really interesting, it's, it's very, it's different. You know, you can find a lot in California, for example, in the Southwest United States. But what's catching my attention is all the islands and the diverse culture and flora and fauna and just how different. For example, 
you can apparently dine on the ocean floor. That's right. So we've actually taken a concentrated effort in the last few years to work with our operators to really curate some unique, compelling, kind of one-of-a-kind of experiences. And it really did start with a program here called Dining on the Ocean Floor. So you do go out on the Bay of Fundy that I just talked about at low tide and have a four-course meal. And your view is unparalleled, like nothing it could ever match it, as you actually gently see that tide starting to come in as you finish up your meal. But it's accompanied with a great interpreter. You forge your way down to the, to the shoreline, and you're actually collecting the, 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 the forged goods for your first course. It's paired with our local wines. The scenery is spectacular. It's a small group. And again, because of those tides, they change every day. There's only limited times you can do it. So it's not like it's available to everybody every evening at five o'clock. So it's a very small group that gets to enjoy something this unique of an experience. Uh, along those lines, we have other great ones like tidal rafting, where you're, where you're out uh, on the, the Bay of Fundy, the river part of it, in the Zodiac, riding it around. It's like a roller coaster on the water, quite frankly. There's not a, I can't think of any better words to describe it other than like being tossed around in a washing machine of chocolate milk in a very good way. Um, there's a helipicnic experience where you get to helicopter out to Sambro Island in the mouth of Halifax Harbor and you get dropped off on the island. It has the oldest lighthouse in North America on it. And you get to spend the afternoon on the island, have it completely to yourself and have a picnic in there in the afternoon. So. There's those type of experiences that you can find from one end of the province to the other that really, you know, with all due respect, they're the bragging rights to go home and tell your friends and family about. One last thing I want to make sure I get in is that it's the lobster capital of Canada. Now, I love a good lobster bisque, by the way. Absolutely. I'm, though I'm not quite the lobster person. So I'm just thinking that's very cool. It, it is really cool here. So like I said, I've I'm a born and raised from a lobstering family in a small uh, lobstering community. So it's near and dear to my heart. Um, and in fact, they've kind of tagged me here as uh, even on Instagram, I'm the lady loves lobster. So I'm, I'm about all things lobster. But I'm actually from that part of the province in the southwestern part of the province. So when I'm growing up, and even now, the, the lobster fishery is very well managed here in Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada. And it's seasonal depending on what part of the province you're in. So those seasons rotate. On the southwestern part, there's a community called Barrington, uh, the municipality of Barrington. And they've been deemed the lobster capital of Canada because in that part of the province, they are fishing for lobster through the winter and early spring, November to May, over six months. And that area alone is responsible for uh, landing about 40% of all the lobster caught in Canada on an annual basis. So it's a pretty significant number to come from a small region. And they do all things to celebrate. In fact, we've just finished a month-long celebration the entire month of February that's called the Lobster Crawl Festival. And there's all kinds of things from restaurants doing featured lobster dishes. There's a lobster roll-off competition. We have um, the tail end party. We have producers doing unique things. Like we actually have a lobster beer that's produced through the month of February. We had a bakery participate this year creating a lobster donut. So it's kind of all kinds of neat ways to have some touch points to one of our, well, my favorite crustacean anyways. Sounds like that's where we need to go for our vacation this year. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Pam, where can we go to find out more information about this? We've got lots of information on our website at novascotia.com. You can pick it by regions that you want to explore, by products. But there's also sample itineraries on there. There's a list of you know, 25 don't miss attractions those unique experiences I talked about, there's a wealth of information on there as well, or you can follow any of our social media channels too. Sounds good. We're going to head on to novascotia.com and check it out. Pam, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about this today. It was very interesting. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Tony. And I look forward to showing off to some lobster bisque in our neck of the woods someday. You got it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured six key insider's briefs to help you in business and in life. It may seem a little eclectic, but each one had something important that can impact you. 
We hope you enjoyed these short informational briefs and that you learned some vital gems. Did anything in particular resonate with you? Let me know. And please share this with a few friends to help them too. It's Friends Helping Friends, which is so vital to get everything on the right track today. Your friends will appreciate knowing about this. All right, use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks and remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds. And join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 